and welcome to Horrorcore Trash Trevor, the show that discusses all of the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And we've just got through Pride Month, a month where we've had so many good films to talk about. Not a bad film in sight. No, which is nice. Yeah, for good a times. Whole month. Good times. Especially for Pride Month. Yeah, and uh, obviously we missed putting ourselves through fucking torture for you guys. Yeah. So here we are today. Um, we were originally discussing Titanic 666, but we did a swap, and instead, to celebrate an upcoming film in October, The uh, Exorcist Believer, mm. who knows how that's going to turn out. Yeah. It, well, spoiler alert, it can't be any fucking worse than this. Well, we're discussing Exorcist 2, The Heretic, from 1977. One of uh, serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer's favourite films. <laughs> wow. That says a lot. Um, one of his surviving victims recalls him watching this film uh, repeatedly in a trance-like state. God. Yeah. God damn. Hey, but it's not the only one. Um, Martin Scorsese said, The picture asks, Does great goodness bring upon itself great evil? This goes back to the book of Job. It's God testing the good. In this sense, Reagan is a modern-day saint, like Ingrid Bergman in Europe 51. And in a way, like Charlie in Mean Streets. Oh, my least favourite Martin Scorsese film. Oh, yeah. Uh, I like the first Exorcist because of the Catholic guilt I have and because I scared the, and because it scared the hell out of me. But the heretic surpasses it. Maybe Borman failed to execute the material, but the movie still deserved better than it got. The audience deserved better than it they got. They did. They did. Um, Quentin Tarantino also loves the film. Of course. Uh, and he even used a song by Ennio Morricone in The Hateful Eight. Which is fine. Because one of its redeeming points... The only not redeeming many, point. Ma- maybe. <laughs> is the soundtrack. Yeah. And obviously we'll discuss that when we get into it. But for me, this is a film that could... Have been great. It could have been. It had all the ingredients for a great film. Yeah. And it fucked it up. And I don't know, you know, sometimes you're baking a cake and you've got all your ingredients there and you think you know what you're doing and it just falls flat. You just fuck the cake up. And this cake is, it's burnt, it's flat, it's tasteless. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I first watched this years ago after watching the first film, and I was just so confused. I I, I didn't know what the fuck was going on here. I, I, you know, my taste wasn't that great back then, and even I knew then it was fucking trash. And I thought, oh, maybe, you know, the years that have been kind to it, maybe it's misunderstood. No, it's it's not. It's it's terrible. This was my first watch of the film, and it would be my last watch of the film. Uh, it's directed by Sir John Borman, who directed Deliverance, Excalibur, Queen and Country, The Tiger's Tail, Country of My Skull, The Tailor of Panama, The General, Zardos, Point Blank, etc., etc. He was originally offered the opportunity to direct the first Exorcist, but passed because he found the script repulsive, so he made Zardos instead. <laughs> Which I really want to watch, Sardos. I, I do. And there's a few, so. I think Deliverance is a fantastic film. 
And I don't want to keep going on about it, but there are so many parts of this film that should have led to a great film. Yeah. Number one, the director, John Borman, is a good director. Mm -hmm. This is after... I mean, I haven't seen Zardoz, but I'm sure it's camp fun. But Deliverance is a fantastic film. Yeah. It's an intense film. It's a scary film. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why was he not able to translate that? You know, Deliverance isn't a um, horror film per se, but why can't he take some of that that he did so well in Deliverance and apply it to The Exorcist 2? Well, because um, he doesn't like violence. Apparently. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, the director of Deliverance does not like violence. Um, Stanley Kubrick warned him because Stanley Kubrick is offered to direct this and turn it down. And he said to him, Look, if you do this, you've got to be more graphic and horrific than the original. Mm. That's how you're going to succeed. But he ignored him. Um, he wanted something a lot lighter. And he also, poor thing, uh, he uh, contracted San Joaquin Valley fever, which yeah. is a uh, respiratory fungal infection. Yeah. Uh, which no. caused filming to be suspended for five weeks. And it was determined uh, to be caused from the dust used in the African sets from the film. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't know how much this was actually filmed in Africa. I, I don't, don't think a lot. think a lot. Um, in a 2005 interview, he said, uh, it all comes down to audience expectations. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> the film that I made, I saw as a kind of uh, opposite to the ugliness and darkness of The Exorcist. I wanted a film about journeys that were positive, about good, essentially. <laughs> and I think the audiences, in hindsight, were right. I denied them what they wanted, and they were pissed off about it, quite rightly. I knew I wasn't giving them what they wanted, and it was a really foolish choice. The film itself, I think, is an interesting one. There's some good work in it. But when they come to me with it, when they came to me with it, I told John Kelly, who was running Warner Brothers, that I didn't want it. Look, I said, I have daughters. I don't want to make a film about torturing a child, which is how I saw the original film. But then I read a three page treatment for a sequel written by a man named William Goodhart. And I was really intrigued by it because it was about goodness. I saw it then as a chance to go as a polar opposite to the first film. But it had one of the most disastrous openings ever. There were riots. And we recut the actual prints in the theatres about six a day. But it didn't help, of course. And I couldn't bear to talk about it or look at it for years. Oh, Hearn, come on. You're making a sequel to The Exorcist. Don't try and make it about the power of good. <laughs> what are you doing? But the thing is, it could have been. It could have been about that. I mean, the outcome of the first one is good the power of good. Yeah. evil. You know, that's what these films are about. The devil versus God. And all that stuff. Why overcomplicate it? Yeah. This is this is where the film fails. It's overcomplicated. <laughs> it's messy. It's confusing. Yeah. And so if your message is good triumphing over evil, why did it at the end of the film I go, well, what the fuck was that about? Yeah. We can try and decipher something, but it, it shouldn't be the Enigma Code, trying to understand an Exorcist sequel. I mean, if anything, the ending is probably more bleak than the uh, than the first film. I mean, the place they leave it at, you know, at least it's in, yeah. in the original. You know, it's bright daylight, everyone's fine. Only you know one, one or two people have died, and so on. 
But this... Just one or two. This, you're like, it's nighttime, coming out of a fucking run-down house that's just been destroyed. You know, someone's just been burnt alive. It's like, oh my God, how is yeah. that better than the first film? Yeah. Well, it was written by William Goodhart, uh, who wrote Cloud Dancer and A Time Forgiving. Nothing else. Yeah, so William Goodhart has one of the strangest IMDb bios I've ever read. And uh, I'll read it out for you now. Okay. So William Goodhart is a Broadway playwright and screenwriter whose interest in theology and the occult led him to the original ideas for both A Time Forgiving, 1969, and Exorcist II, The Heretic, 1977. Much of the inspiration for his stories came from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a French Jesuit priest who believed that man and nature would inspire to a oneness with God. Goodhart got that great task in 1999 when he sadly passed away from cancer. Oh, so, wow. Um, okay, talk about a bleak ending. Um, Jesus. But I, I do feel, after reading that, I did understand probably more of the film or what they were going for of good religion and nature being at one. I do get that now. Yeah. I mean, they don't do a good job of it. No. But, you know, I shouldn't have to read a back no. story to understand the film. So, A Time for Giving, um, it appears to be quite a strange film too. So, it's about Jim Bolton, a well-off businessman from Chicago, who hears that his daughter Doris is pregnant in New York. <laughs> Since he did not even know she was seeing anyone, he fears the worst. <laughs> Unbeknownst to him, his daughter and Walter, the father of his grandchild, marry shortly before Jim's arrival in New York. <laughs> this is a comedy. He is shocked to hear that Doris and Walter plan a natural childbirth in their apartment. Oh no. With Walter actually delivering their child. At first, Jim doubts Walter's sincerity and expertise, but he gains respect for his new son-in-law when the doctor he calls in to consult informs him that Walter is prepared for anything. Oh, my God. So, you, <laughs> you've you got this dude who has written one film previously yeah. in 1969, a comedy <laughs> about a, a guy who's nervous that his daughter wants to give birth at home. You are then saying, I bet he'd write a really great Exorcist sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Really, bitch? Really? This is where where it goes wild. Yeah. I think that the moment this film was fucked up was that screenplay. Because you couldn't make anything of it. No, and... Yeah, I have some bizarre trivia coming up about the, the <laughs> film and the production and everything. Um, it was co-written and co-directed by an uncredited Rospo Palenberg who worked on Excalibur, The Barber of Siberia, The Emerald Forest and Druids. Mm. Uh, and obviously based on characters created by an uncredited William Peter Blatty. <laughs> yeah, because he probably wanted nothing. Well, there was all the issues, wasn't there, with rights and stuff like that and... Him and William Friedkin and I'm, all that business. The way William Friedkin is, I'm I'm really surprised he, he didn't punch anyone in the face who worked on this film. I mean, <laughs> he seems to... Um, he didn't really, in interviews we've seen, he didn't really give a shit about any sequels being made. Um, which is a shame because The Exorcist 3 is actually a top-notch sequel. Um, yeah, just forget this one exists and move on. To, listen to us talk about it and just move on to that. 
Just um, look at the camp parts. Yeah, this, this is the problem. YouTube. It's there, there are partially a trash the piece. Camp. There are moments where it yeah. is so entertaining, but then as soon as we get to the middle act and you know a certain character just walks in circles around Africa for like fucking five hours, <laughs> it is boring. It is. Um. It was made on a budget of $14 million. The production was refused permission to film at just about every single location they asked for, including the house from the first film, leading to them having to recreate everything on a studio backlot and inflating $9,000, million budget all the way up to $14 million. But it made money. It made $30.7 million. Not great. It's not great, but... They made the money back. Only... Only the original in this one made its money back in cinemas, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you remember the fucking prequels they released where it was like the same film released twice? I'm not going to lie. No. One of them, I've I think one them. of them was theatrically released and the other was like was straight to DVD. Paul Schrader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of them was yeah. Paul Schrader. Yeah, it is. Oh, so it's the story. Uh, is it the story of Merrin yeah. in Africa? Uh-huh. Oh. And it's Stellan Skarsgård, so it's like really good casting as well. I've never seen them, but I don't know. I haven't really heard the best. Are they maybe duds? I don't know. I did. I did see a clip once on TV, um, where uh, someone is wearing like a rubber Reagan mask. Oh no! And trying to attack him, and I I just didn't bother after that. Um, but uh, who knows? Who knows? I don't think they're podcast worthy. Um. Um. Yeah. I'm not going to lie, Letterboxd isn't too pleased with yeah. them. But again, I may remind you, The Exorcist 3 is absolutely worthy of everyone's time. Yes. Um, It made, yeah, $30.7 million. Uh, it's widely regarded as a flop, but uh, it was actually uh, the one, the only one of the sequels or prequels to show a profit mm-hmm. on its theatrical release, despite being a major underperformer and a critical embarrassment to the studio. Uh, however, the film's critical reception was so bad that the plans for The Exorcist 3 were promptly dropped and it wouldn't be released until 13 years later. I think when the original is such a huge success, yeah, then, you know, the sequel has to do much better. Well, this was rushed into production because of The Omen. Oh, okay. Because of the success of The Omen, yeah. Warner Bros. was like, okay, fuck, we need to get a sequel out to The Exorcist. Yeah. Fast. Um, and I I mean, you know, as The Exorcist 3 has proven, you can make a good sequel to The Exorcist. It's not, you know, impossible. It's, the premise is there, it's laid out for you. Mm. Yeah. But then we'll, we'll, we'll tell you why this gets We'll tell you. The, the film's producers deliberately intended the film to be less graphic, as I said. Uh, to the point that they wanted to get a PG. Oh, Lord. Um, yeah. Yawn. Why? Why would you want a PG to an R-rated film? Like, a PG sequel to an R-rated film? But not What's just the a, point? Not just a PG sequel to an R-rated film. A PG sequel to what was touted for decades, and even to this very day, touted as the scariest and most intense film people have ever watched. I I still say... This isn't isn't a throwaway horror film. This is The Exorcist. Oscar-nominated, you know, world-renowned, huge film, a huge fucking film, known for its intensity. Why would you ever go for a PG? Fuck off. 
I still say to this day that The Exorcist is the scariest film ever made. And for me, it, it really is. Like, it still creeps me out to this day. Um, it's just a absolute masterclass in horror filmmaking and just filmmaking in general. You know, it hits all the right notes. Mm. And it's also, you know, I mean, one of the biggest criticisms I'm sure we both have for this film is the fact of how hard it tries and how overcomplicated it gets. It's a complicated film, The Exorcist. There are many layers to it. You yeah. know, you've got to sit down and really think about it when you watch it. Because everyone knows it for the whole, your mother sucks cocks in hell and masturbating for crucifix. But there's so much more to it than that. Yeah. You know, there's so much more to that film. And it's such a, a clever, well-made film, well-written. Um, and I think this film thought it was. Uh, but to, you know, there is one central part of The Exorcist. Yeah. That's integral to keep everything else together. Yeah. So it's almost like a spider web. Yeah. You have the centre. And the centre is Reagan being possessed by a demon. Yeah. And everything else around it, you know, simple or complicated. And all the themes and all the other characters are centred around this moment. And this, you know, this plot device. That doesn't exist in this sequel. Mm-hmm. And that's why it just loses its yeah. shit. The original cast and crew of The Exorcist were very much opposed to a sequel. Uh, William Friedkin and William Peter Blatty uh, actually met to discuss ideas at one point. Uh, But when they failed to develop a suitable premise, they abandoned the project. Both Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn turned down repeated offers by the studio, though Blair eventually agreed to return when presented with what she considered to be a good script. But, according to Blair... Due to various rewrites in the script, uh, it ended up a total mess. And by the time she started acting in the film, she was contract she was contractually obliged to be there. She couldn't drop out, and it was a completely different script. Yeah. Uh, William Friedkin said he watched the film uh, at Technicolor. He watched a uh, a print of it. He watched half an hour and thought it was so bad. He thought it was as bad as seeing a traffic accident in the street. He said it was horrible. It's just a stupid mess made by a dumb guy. Sir John Borman by name. Somebody who should be nameless, but in this case should be named. Freakin later stated that the sequel diminished the value of the original and called it one of the worst films he's ever seen. Uh, he later added the film was made by a demented mind. William Freakin, he seems to be quite an intense man. He is. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe a little too much. Maybe calm, calm it down a bit. Yeah. He also told a story um, recalled to by a Warner Brothers executive at the uh, Chicago Critics Film Festival in April 2013. Studio heads came to the sneak preview of Exodus 2 in a limo and told the drivers to go get fast food. They entered the auditorium and within 10 minutes into the film, an audience member stood up, glanced into the crowd and proclaimed, the people who made this piece of shit are in the room. 10 or 12 of our audience members gathered to find the executives. The heads rushed out of the theatre and realised that there were no cars to make their escape. They were subsequently chased down the street by a group of angry audience members, and many other screenings also had people throw things at the screen. That's maybe a little too much. <laughs> I, don't, I can't, yeah. Yeah, William Peter Blatty... I've never seen an audience angry. I mean, we had someone answer a phone not too recently. Wow. Theatre etiquette has sort of gone out the window uh, recently, but... Definitely, I don't think I'd chase anyone down the yeah. street because I didn't like a film. I mean, I believe it. I think Americans definitely maybe overreact a little. Um, you know, I know I'm saying that when up 
country that listens to us the most apparently to our stats is America but come on guys you, you get a bit excited at cinema don't you <laughs> it, it is kind of that um, scream 2 opening scene yeah kind of <laughs> the uh, stereotype isn't yeah it? And they shout over here you'd you'd get an angry Gary telling you to be quiet yeah uh, and William Peter Blatty said that he went to screeners of it that were filled so much with laughter to the point you'd think you were watching a comedy. Yeah. Let's talk about... <laughs> I didn't even find it funny. <laughs> Let's talk about who lost their minds and uh, decided to be in the film. Yes, in a section we like to call, Hey, I know you, and what the fuck are you doing in this shit? Yeah, Paul Linda Blair, previous podcast star. Yeah. Back as Reagan McNeil. Star of The Exorcist, Chain Heat, Hell Night, Grotesque, Savage Streets, Roller Boogie, Sorceress, Summer of Fear, and more. She uh, refused to be subjected to the makeup she wore in the first film, so in flashback scenes, the possessed Reagan was played by a double, uh, and Blair called the film one of the biggest disappointments of her career. She's been in some random shit. She has, but she may have been in some random shit because of this film. Yeah. And, and that tends to be the case. It tends to be the women, mm-hmm. mainly, that get punished for being in bad films. Yeah. Um, obviously, you're, gonna, you're about to mention someone else, mm. Louise Fletcher. Mm-hmm. Louise Fletcher had just won the Oscar for an astonishing performance yeah. in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Her career stalled. Yeah. And I'm assuming after this, because I can't name you until Cruel Intentions. I'm sorry, I can't name you another Louise Fletcher film. I think she worked a little with um, Robert Altman at times, but in, in small roles. Uh, Thieves Like Us, I think she was in, but I think it may have been before, but whatever. You know, Linda Blair, Louise Fletcher went on to nothing. Mm. You know, and then you look at the male actors, yeah. and they're not remembered for being in The Exorcist, too. Yeah. Unfortunately, although one of them probably should be. Uh, but yeah, Louise Fletcher is Dr. Jean Tuscan, uh, star of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Flowers in the Attic, Cruel Intentions, uh, Virtuosity, oh. The Player, Blue Steel, Frankenstein and Me, and more. Oh, she was in um, <clears throat> uh, Flowers in the Attic, yeah. Um, yeah, because of her resemblance to... Uh, Ellen Burstyn. Louise Fletcher was originally cast as Chris McNeil when Burstyn had refused to reprise her role. But she was actually recast as Dr. Jean Tuskin, a role originally written for a man when a suitable male actor couldn't be found. And as a result, Kitty Wynn was contacted to reprise her role as Sharon, Reagan's nanny, to fill in for Reagan's mother. There you are then. Lovely. I mean, you know... Reagan obviously can't be a strong, independent woman. On the problem, my problem with Reagan is that obviously she's still a child, but... And she's supposed to be 17. Yeah. So still, like, a minor. Yeah. But kind of so heavily made up... Yeah. ...that she looks a lot older. So it's really strange. Yeah, bless her. She was going through uh, her drug problems at this point in her mm. career... Uh, to the point that she'd be late on set every day and that turning up 20 minutes late was an achievement. I think, and it's it's unfortunately a tale as old as time, these young actors and, and actresses who get fame very young and are just left to their own devices yeah. and they have no one to look after them. You know, it's still to this very day. 
Lindsay Lohan, Amanda Bynes, mm. you know, um, Tatum O'Neill, Drew Barrymore, yeah. um, Linda Blair, mm-hmm. where such fame so early. It, and there's no one, and I, I don't, I don't want to talk about anyone's parenting because I don't know, but how it seems mm. is they're just kind of left to the showbiz world yeah. at a young age. They've got everything there, drugs, alcohol, all of it, and there's no one telling them no or slapping mm. their hand and saying, "Oi, you get, you know, get back." To your studies or, yeah. or anything like that. And I, I think it's a real shame because I think Linda Blair is a very talented actress and trust and believe her B-movies <clears throat> are top notch. Yeah. I love them. Camp classics. Yeah. But I really think that she could have been a lot bigger and more successful as an actress. And I think it is a role like this. And obviously she's Reagan. She's the one from the first film. So she, she, it's her face on the poster. Yeah. She's going to get backlash too. Oh, yeah. It's Linda Blair has made this giant dud yeah. of a film. Well, actually, Linda Blair read a better script mm-hmm. and was contract- contractually obligated to star in this yeah. shit. Yeah. You know, and I, I think it's shit like that that taints actresses. I think a lot more than actors, actually. Oh, definitely. Um... Yeah, we won't get too much into it, but I do, I do think that is how it is. Yeah, it's definitely didn't affect our next "Hey, I Know You" as much as it did the other two. Richard Burton uh, plays Father Philip Lamont. He is a star of "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf?" A little back in anger, nineteen eighty four, the spy who came in from the cold, uh, Beckett, Breakthrough, Equus, and more. Uh, so he started out sober, uh, according to Linda Blair, on the set, but frequently became more drunk during the middle and end of filming. Uh, she also says the tensions were high amongst the cast. Richard Burton openly admitted in interviews that this was a paycheck picture for him because he had a divorce coming up from Elizabeth Taylor and he needed the money for that. Yeah. Hell yeah, he would have needed the money for that. <laughs> Fucking hell. Richard Burton, incredibly talented yeah. actor. Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, one of my favourite films, and he is astonishing in it. I'd love to see more of his films. He is fucking abysmal in this. <laughs> he's terrible. You can tell he's drunk. You like, can tell he doesn't give a shit. There are countless scenes in this film where he is just staring into the camera for a prolonged period of time. I yeah. mean, far too long. He didn't have to do much. No. They literally just, just sit there and just look straight into the camera. But this didn't ruin his career. No, of course He's not. He's still well regarded as one of the all-time great actors. Yes. You know, this didn't stall anything for him because he got his money. He divorced Elizabeth Taylor, gave her what, what she was owed yeah. and carried on. Elizabeth Taylor was frequently on the set of this film. That is camp. Hi, could you imagine? Imagine Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor, Taylor. <laughs> stood there watching the fucking hypnosis scene, watching fucking Linda Blair tap dancing. I mean, like, um, <laughs> is this post identical? Because that's yeah, that's so. a, that's a wacky film. Yeah. Because I imagine she's dressed exactly like she was dressed in identical, <laughs> watching these shenanigans. <laughs> Um, Max von Sydow is back as father Lancaster Merrin, barely. 
Uh, of course, I have the Exorcist, Flash Gordon, The Seventh Seal, The Virgin Spring, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Minority Report, and more. He gets a few little uh, flashback scenes. Yeah. With uh, Rubberface Reagan. Yeah, I'm not. I can't really comment on his performance because. He just does exactly what he did. He just does. Okay. He just does it again. Um, and James Earl Jones uh, is in this as Kokomo. Uh, of course, James Earl Jones is fucking Darth Vader. Um, in the Star Wars films, The Lion King, Hunt from Red o- Hunt for Red October, Conan the Barbarian, The Sandlot Kids, Doctor Strange Love, Field of Dreams, and more. Yeah, Oscar nominated for uh, Great White Hope. Yeah, you know when you look at this cast because you've also got you know Paul Henrides. I think that's how you pronounce it, who was in Casablanca. Yeah. You know, Ned Beatty, who was in Deliverance mm-hmm. and uh, Network and a really great supporting character actor. Um, you, Just incredible talents leading this film. Yeah. Like, really incredible. You look, Richard Burton, Oscar nominee. Linda Blair, Oscar nominee. Louise Fletcher, Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. Max von Sydow, Oscar nominee. Kitty Wynn. She was in the original. James Earl Jones. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I will explain. Kitty Wynn is by far the worst. But she was good in the original. She was all right. She was all right. <laughs> you know what they should have done for the sequel? They should have just had um, the detective and uh, the priest that was played by a real priest. They should have just had them going around the country, just fucking solving all different exorcisms, Russell Crowe style in the Folk's Exorcist, like bumbling buddy cop, and I would fucking be there for it. It would be so much better than this. Well, they asked him to reprise his role, the real priest. Yeah. And he said no. Well, of course he did. He had the script. He had a vision from God. <laughs> God told me not to. Yeah, you, you notice how all the, uh, the God botherers who protested the first film they weren't protesting this one. No. <laughs> this one ain't doing shit. People are going to understand it to realise whether it's offensive or not to uh, Catholicism. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about our feature presentation. Warner Brothers takes you a step beyond. Exorcist 2. The Heretic. Starring Linda Blair. Richard Burton, Louise Fletcher, Max von Sydow, James Earl Jones, their minds locked together with the most terrifying vision of all. Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Um, yeah, can we just start with a little round of applause yeah. for Linda Blair for getting top billing? Go on, girl. Go on, go on, Linda Blair. Yes. <laughs> First one. Shame it's for this It's all film. downhill from here. Um, Philip Lamont, a priest struggling with his faith, attempts to exercise a possessed girl in Latin America who claims to heal the sick. Um, I mean, if she claims to heal the sick, what's the fucking problem? Leave her to it. Well, she does say, she's like, <laughs> I heal the sick. Why me? Yeah, it's like, um, I mean, yeah, good point, girl. I mean, yeah. leave her alone. Yeah, I'm doing a nice job here. What's your problem? 
I mean, you know, the, the one in the first film was like mutilating a child's body, and this one's like, well, I'm, I mean, I heal people, so you could just leave me alone. Exactly. Uh, the exorcism goes wrong, and a lit candle sets fire to her dress, killing her while she has a big smile on her face, and it is fucking camp. It's high camp, cheesy special effects, and I, I was like, oh, okay. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm here for this. Yeah. This is gonna be bad taste, trash to piece. I am ready for this because. In terms of the opening, yeah, it's shit. But I was like, okay, this is it's giving me Italian horror. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know, low low budget. And this is released at the time when a lot of Italian horror films were doing cheap exorcist ripoffs. This feels like one of them. This yes. feels like one of them with yes. a bit of a budget. This is also the same year as Suspiria, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is a year. This is the same decade as Halloween, Black Christmas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dawn of the Dead, The Exorcist, the original Exorcist, you know? No excuse. One of the best decades ever for horror. This is in there. Maybe the best. Yeah, it could, it could Actually, well be. It is the game changer. The it is the decade that changed everything. And in like, cinema as well. Yeah. 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 And you got the fucking God... Warner Brothers released The Godfather Part Fucking 2 and The Exorcist 2 in the same decade. Yeah. <laughs> just let that sink in. Uh, we're reintroduced to Reagan McNeil and things just get better. Uh, you know, you thought the opening sequence was funny. This is even better. She's seemingly normal now and staying with her guardian, Sharon Spencer, uh, who is now, by the way... She's trying to look and dress like Chris McNeil. She is. Like, you're missing Chris McNeil. Here's your substitute. She's been raised in a wardrobe. Yeah. Um, she lives in very New York City. Uh, and when we're introduced to her, she's doing some really slay tap dancing. Uh, whilst a flirty guy plays saxophone for her. And in a recent documentary about the making of the film, Linda Blair said, uh, John Borman approached her and said, I want you to learn tap dancing for this movie. I think Reagan needs to tap dance in this movie. And Blair laughed in his face and said, she ain't no tap dancer. Uh, and yet there she is at the beginning, tapping away. And tapper, she got tapper, tapper. she got lessons for it. And she's fucking great at it. I mean, it is just seriously one of the best things I've ever seen. It is campus tits. It is. And again, after that cheesy opening and then cut into her tap dancing. Yeah. I was like, get me the popcorn. I am. I'm sold. And it gets even better. Go. It gets even better. Reagan is now being monitored at a psychiatric institute by Dr. Jean Tuskett. Now, this psychiatric institute, I'm kind of reluctant to call it that because this psychiatric institute has patients in there who have Down syndrome. Patients in there who are disabled people, who are autistic. How are they being treated the same as a girl who was demonically possessed. <laughs> it is, yeah. But there... Uh, it doesn't make sense. There's no consistency no, to no. the patients. There's nothing there. There isn't. The confusing <laughs> part is that, by all accounts, Reagan is functioning normally yeah. after the possession. And she doesn't even remember the possession. Yeah. So it's kind of like, wh why is she, she there? Really? Yeah. Why is she in a hospital? Yeah. Everyone else there is disabled. Demonic possession is not a disability. No. But especially if you don't remember uh, yeah. it. Well, she claims she only goes to the Institute to help her mum feel better because she feels guilty. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, she remembers nothing about her ordeal in Washington, D.C. But Tuskin believes that her memories are repressed. 
Okay. She says, because uh, her mum feels guilty due to the divorce and her career and Ellen Burstyn not wanting to sign on for the sequel. <laughs> in an attempt to plumb her memories of the exorcism and specifically the circumstances in which Merrin died, Tuscan explains that she wants to hypnotise Reagan. In a bizarre series of events, she'd be linked to her by a synchronizer, a revolutionary biofeedback device used by two people to synchronize their brain waves. Reagan doesn't think she's ready for it just yet, though, and the audience aren't ready for it just yet. You need another few minutes. You need to let that drink sink in. You need yes. to, you know, get your feet up, prepare yourself, because nothing can prepare you for this. Lamont is assigned to the Cardinal to investigate the death of Father Merrin, who was killed four years earlier whilst Reagan was being exorcised of the uh, Assyrian demon Pazuzu. So he's facing posthumous heresy charges because of his controversial writings. So um, as the church authorities are trying to modernise and do not want to acknowledge that Satan exists, Father Lamont is tasked with clearing his name yeah essentially um the cardinal strangely has a lot of framed photographs of priests on his desk <laughs> um like there's a lot of them yeah okay question he went Complete. to priest con in regards irregardless of the film yeah. yeah when you when people have photos on their desk yeah are they facing towards them or away from them should be towards them. It should be towards. Yeah. It is in this one as well. Yeah. So he's got like six faces staring at him. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> of just priests. random priests. Top, top six priests. <laughs> uh, Father Lamont visits the Institute. Biggest mistake he could have made. Um, this, this is the problem. <laughs> is that he, he doesn't mind his own business. Yeah. This is a film that wouldn't have existed if people minded their own business. If the Catholic Church just kept their noses in, in the church and not out of it, then we wouldn't be in this situation. You keep, you keep your nose out of like, no, no, Who the fuck's talking about Father Merrin? Seriously, no one's talking about him. No one gives a shit. Like, why, why do you want his name clear for? No one cares about him. He's gone. That's it. Like, if anyone's going to remember anything about that story, it's going to be the fact that someone was possessed, not the person doing the fucking exorcism. Uh, but yeah, he goes there and he attempts to question Reagan about the circumstances of Merrin's death. Uh, but before he can, uh, Tuscan's not having any of it. She believes that his approach would do Reagan more harm than good. To which he says... Spoiler alert, she's right. She is. And he says, you realise what you're up against, don't you? Evil. <laughs> and Richard Burton is fucking a few drinks deep by this point. He is... Yeah, he's going for yeah. it. Yeah, he says that you have a heavy responsibility, the care of her soul. <laughs> to which Tuscan replies, her body and her mind are my responsibility, Father Lamont. Uh, Reagan decides... Whatever, whatever that even fucking means. <laughs> Reagan decides she now wants to try the machine that Tuscan told her about. So, unfortunately for everyone, she and Tuscan are hooked up to the machine the next day. Father Lamont is there too to watch in on this. Not sure how professional that is. Uh, this involves so many camp facial expressions from Richard Burton, Linda Blair, and Louise Fletcher. Uh, and it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Because when they're not doing facial camp facial expressions, Father Lamont is just sitting there looking bored out of his mind. His eyes are watering. He's so bored. 
And it's high camp, but it goes on for so long. It goes on for so long. Reagan remembers Father Merrin praying before his death. Mm -hmm. uh, And Tuscan starts having a reaction to the visions. Now, whilst we're seeing this, we have someone in some really fucking cheap looking makeup as uh, possessed Reagan. Yeah, so it's a uh, what I believe is a double exposure. Yeah. So you have, you know, on top of Tuskin, um, the image of Father Merrin and the non Linda Blair. Yeah. Reagan. Um. So it it it's a camp effect. It looks stupid. It is, and it's it, very silly. Yeah. And Reagan's voice, it, she sounds like a fucking pantomime villain. She's like, ah, her soul is mine. Ow. <laughs> So, in a very strange series of events, Tuscan's heart is racing. <laughs> so, seemingly, she's taken the place of Merrin, who died of a heart attack mm-hmm. during the exorcism in the original film. She's taken the place. And it's made to look like the non-Linda Blair Reagan yeah. is creating the heart attack or heart, heart racing. What it actually looks like is... Louise Fletcher being inappropriately groped. <laughs> it, it's yeah. There's no other way of looking at it. Yeah. Like it's it's her breast, and so I I, it just looks really awkward it does. and a bit seedy. Yeah. If really, because it it looks and then it turns into Linda Blair Reagan, and the non Linda Blair Reagan, <laughs> both have <laughs> their hands. On fighting over a chest, Louise Fletcher's <laughs> tit. Yeah, and then it, the camera zooms in, and we see an actual heart. Yeah, beating very fast, uh-huh. and it looks shit. <laughs> it looks <laughs> shit. Yeah, Father and Mum puts the uh, machine headset on to try and bring her back whilst all this is going on. Um. And, uh, yeah, Reagan's face starts to merge with cheap makeup Reagan. Yeah. And Tuscan's face starts merging with Father Merrin. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Linda Blair's like, tell Jean she will not remember. And then... <laughs> Father... Why are you doing this? Why are you giving her a Cockney accent? Father Lamont's like, Jean, you will not remember. Jean, you will not remember. <laughs> and she comes back around and, funny enough, no one can remember. Okay, why the fuck is no one saying to Linda Blair, why are you trying to make her forget this? That's a little sketchy on your behalf, don't you think? But is it is it this not what they wanted? This is why I'm confused. So they wanted the truth about Father Merrin's death. And so that's why they've hooked up to this um, machine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so did they not just get their answer? Yeah. Because Lamont concludes that the demon killed Merrin. Yeah. Made him have a heart attack, the same as what was happening to Tuskin when she was under hypnosis. Um, how does Lamont feel about the conclusion that the demon had killed Mary? <laughs> Fascinating. And no, no, we'll get to that. Before that, Reagan talks. Reagan talks to another kid in the institute who's just drawing a house, minding her own business. It's like, ah, oh, your house is so dull. <laughs> Let me do something better. If we don't see it just yet. Oh. But Linda Blair telling a child that she's drawing a dull house, that's camp. Yeah. Father Lamont uh, reels a Tuscan that he does, he does remember what he witnessed. And then he doesn't just say it's fascinating. He 
breaks the fourth fucking wall and says it was something evil and fascinating. <laughs> Whilst breaking the fourth wall. Why is someone breaking the fourth wall in an Exorcist sequel? Fascinating. It's the only time that happens as well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Never happens again. Because I thought he was looking at Louise Fletcher. Yeah, she's completely other side of the room. She's the... Uh, well, she's to the left, isn't yeah. she? So, yeah. Tuscan's assistant gives Father Lamont the picture that Reagan was drawing. And she comes up, oh, here you go, Father. Here, this this is uh, what Reagan was drawing. Really happy about it. You know, no concern whatsoever. The picture is him with red eyes and fire behind him. <laughs> flames. Flames. He runs after Tuscan. He's like, Doctor, Doctor, the flames. They're getting bigger. We need to put the fire out. <laughs> yeah. He's so it's so intense that he repeats everything twice. So it's like the flames, the flames. Um, in a strange series of events, Lamont and Tuskin find a box on fire with a doll inside, within the hospital. Yeah. Um. Tuskin looks at, um. Lamont, as he's trying to put the fire out mm-hmm. with a crutch. That's not going to work. <laughs> really? Why? He just grabs a nearby crutch and starts whacking it. It actually makes it worse. <laughs> and she sees that it mirrors the picture that Reagan had drew. Yeah? Yeah. So that makes sense. So she's predicting the future in some way. Okay. Lamont and Tuskin, Tuskin grabs a extinguisher and seemingly doesn't put it out because then the fire engines turn up and everyone's evacuated. Yeah. So seemingly she she doesn't help either. <laughs> and outside they're discussing everything and they discuss what happened, and Tuskin believes Reagan's picture, although unexplainable, had helped save them from the fire. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know how. I don't know how. Just stick to it predicting the future. Yeah. Not helping you. But I'm sure that'll come back later with, when it's revealed that she's some sort of saint or something. Um, <laughs> in the background, as they're talking, we see someone being thrown up in the air <laughs> and caught by the firefighter's life net. <laughs> Repeatedly. Yeah. So they're having this very, you know, um, not intense conversation, but, you know, serious yeah. conversation. And in the background, you just see this extra being thrown <laughs> up in the air and coming back down. It's very distracting. I swear they didn't know they were being filmed. I reckon they didn't know they were being filmed. So they it's just, likely. Just kept throwing them yeah. up and down. It's likely they were just having some shits and giggles in the background. <laughs> it, yeah, that is highly likely. Uh, Reagan hears voices in her sleep and starts dreaming about a locust swarm in Africa, which causes her to sleepwalk out onto her balcony and almost fall off it when doves fly past her. She's woken by her doves. Yeah. Um, and it's it's quite... I, I like the visuals in mm. this. Um. Even the gigantic locusts. Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean the balcony. Just, just the balcony. 
She screams and wakes up Sharon. Yeah. Uh, but doesn't seem to remember what had just happened or just doesn't feel the need to explain. No, she's now feeding the doves. She's now feeding the doves. That balcony. Uh-huh. Health and safety hazard. Yeah. Like, awful. There's a railing, but there's a massive gap in the railing, yeah. which is where she almost fell. Uh-huh. It's like, why have you got a railing anywhere if you have a massive gap where uh-huh. it's missing yeah where she can fall off and why didn't she feel the need to explain that she almost fell off the balcony it's it's honestly cringy at times how much she overacts really nice in this and really happy mm. it's like okay, you nearly just fell off a balcony why are you all smiley and feeding doves like what are you doing? What is this director doing to you? She's... It would have felt more real and relatable if she'd been a little angsty. Yeah. You know, for everything that she's been... You know, why is she... Well, I understand why, because, you know, the, the whole film is trying to paint her out to be a saint. Yeah. An actual saint. I mean, that's what I gather <laughs> from it. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. Um, after a guided tour by Sharon of the Georgetown house where the exorcism took place, um, Lamont returns to be coupled with Reagan by the synchronizer again. So at the Georgetown house, Chris McNeil has allowed Lamont to visit as she and Sharon would do anything for Father Merrick. <laughs> and they're wondering if... Father Merrin's being made into a saint. Yeah. And to which Lamont replies, the world doesn't want any more saints. <laughs> Sharon <laughs> keeps going on about herself <laughs> the whole time they are there. She will not shut the fuck up about herself. And Lamont has to remind her that he isn't there for her. <laughs> I bet it wasn't even scripted either. I bet it was all improvised. <laughs> Just like, look, Joe, I'm getting my chance now. Number one, my number one question in this whole thing is why does Chris still own that house after <laughs> four years? Why does she... Because I thought she only lived there while she was filming that yeah. film. Uh-huh. So why why is she still own that house? You yeah. need to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Like, come on, privilege. Um, Sharon's acting is terrible it in this is. scene. Yeah. Really terrible. Uh, it is in every scene she's in. She's trying to have some sort of breakdown or something, making everything about her. <laughs> and it, the acting, it, it's not good, girls. Um, when he goes back to see Reagan uh, and the synchronizer, he asks Tuskin if she has any kids, which is, yeah, boy and a girl. And uh, she asks if he ever needs a woman. That's what she says he does. <laughs> Never goes anywhere. Never goes anywhere. <laughs> I don't know whether they're going to have some sort of relationship. Well, the priest is spirited to the past by Pazuzu to observe Merrin exercising a young boy called Kokumo in Africa. Learning that the boy develops special powers to fight Pazuzu, who appears as a swarm of locusts. Lament journey. He journeys to Africa, defying his superior to seek help from the adult Kokumo. Now, uh, Kokumo has become a scientist studying how to prevent locust swarms. 
and uh, Lamont learns that Bazuzu attacks people who have psychic healing abilities. Uh, which just leads to something ridiculous in a second. But that's what I've read in, in multiple reviews of this film. Some claim that the depiction of Africa is racist. Some say it isn't. I would say I don't think enough goes on for it to be racist. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I can sort of see where they're coming from. It's a certain stereotypical depiction at times. But then, at the same time, it also feels a little positive in places compared to other films back then. So, I think there's a grey area. It, it, there is a grey area. And I, I would never want to speak on behalf no. of anyone, of a, you know, a different ethnicity to me or different yeah. race. And I would never speak on behalf of anyone in Africa who would have an issue with the mm. depiction in this film. For me personally, yeah, I, I do feel like a lot of what goes on in Africa is depicted as quite stereotypical, yeah. you know, and, and these obviously these tribes exist and it is a, a culture that we like to see showcased yeah. and film. Um, but it, it, it does seem very overish. Mm-hmm. And when you kind of realise that the whole film is about the fact that this very privileged white girl in mm. New York is a saint. Yeah. Then it it's iffy. Yeah. It feels off. Yeah. And it kind of... It feels awkward... When you see the depiction uh-huh. of Africa, and I, I think it, it's it's great to see Kakumo as a scientist, yeah, and you know we see him later in the film in a, a lab coat, and you know it, it's not saying that the whole of Africa is not as developed as it is, uh huh, um, but the big scenes they do seem. Like Africa is this other place, yeah. This far away land where all these things had happened, and then Re- Reagan comes along, the pretty little white girl, yeah, and saves the day. Uh huh. And it, there's just too much of a juxtaposition between the two. Yeah, it just feels off. Yeah, that's true. Well, the stuff about um, Bazuzu going after psychics. We get the payoff for it. Reagan uh, is able to reach telep- <laughs> telepathically inside the minds of others. And in a bizarre series of events, she uses this to help an autistic girl to speak as she waits to see Tuscan. The girl's just minding her own business, and Reagan's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, she's literally like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> Reagan helps her... Uh, to start talking by asking what type of autism she has and tells her she can hear her talking. And then magically, the girl can talk. And then she's like, well, what's wrong with you? And she's I shit you not. She says, I was possessed by a demon. Oh, it's okay. He's gone now. <laughs> and this is the scene I was most aware of. This was the scene that I was most aware of. And her... As bright as anything, yeah. saying, I was possessed by a demon, but it's okay. He's gone now. <laughs> like, 
ridiculous. It's, it's iconic. iconic, but it's fucking stupid. And uh, Reagan says, you know, because um, everyone's astonished that she that her, her name is uh, Sandra Falor. And yeah, everyone's astonished. And she says, well, she was talking on the inside and then she started, started talking on the outside. <laughs> Ridic- absolutely ridiculous. But this is, I mean, she's seemingly, because she never sees Sandra again. No. Cured her in some way yeah. of her autism. Autism's gone forever. How ridiculous. <laughs> but it, 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 it's so far removed from the original. Yeah. We've got a story of her yeah. telepathically healing, like the second coming of Christ. Uh-huh. It's ridiculous. But exactly, you, you know, you had the girl at the start in Africa who was like, uh, oh, I can heal people. And like, fucking burn that bitch. Like, exercise her. Latin America. Latin America, sorry. And uh, like, oh yeah, fucking exercise her now. And then Reagan's like, well, okay, you don't have autism anymore. And like, Oh, wow, that's amazing. No, she actually was demonically possessed before. Maybe do an exorcism on her. Yeah. You know? It's weird choices that just don't correlate and don't make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tuscan and the staff are shocked, but the girl's mother is too overjoyed to care. Oh, she's a little merchant. She is. I've got to get her home. Her dad needs to hear her talk. Uh, and despite Tuscan's attempt to keep them in the office to figure out what happened... She insists on going on going home for the girl's father. Tuskin tells Reagan not to do it again and tells Father Lamont to leave her alone. Reagan is now refusing to go to the Institute until Tuskin agrees to let her go back on the machine and help Father Lamont. Um, <laughs> in the best scene of the film, Reagan takes part in a big camp tap dancing show complete with glittery outfits and a fucking top hat. She looks like Little Nell from Rocky Horror Picture Show. She does. Uh, she does. Whilst Father Lamont has now begun his quest around Africa, he's just walking around a lot. Yes. He then gets hit on the head with a rock, which causes Reagan to react and eventually fall off stage and roll around on the floor during her show. Yeah. Why is she attached to him now? What is this? So the idea is that they are now psychically connected. And uh, Lamont sees her fall off the stage and she starts convulsing. (laughs) um, And she sees him being, you know, pelted with stones in Africa, (laughs) which is... Not good. It's not a good representation. It's not so. good representation, and I don't. It, it's really iffy. Um, I'm assuming it's some sort of, um, kind of what's the word I'm looking for? Analogy mm. towards uh, Christianity in Africa and the yeah. rejection of Christianity in Africa because no one's believing him, and then they start. Throwing stones at him. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. But the tap dancing, falling off stage Uh is high camp. It really is. And the background, I don't know what school she goes to because that background, (laughs) considering she's a poor little rich girl, the staging looks cheap as fuck. The costumes (laughs) look cheap as fuck. Yeah. 
Chris McNeil would not. Chris McNeil would not. She's a list. She yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely no one, no one on this planet asked for uh, Reagan McNeil to be tap dancing in this film. No, here we are. Um, Father Lamont spends ages still walking around Africa. Oh my god! Before eventually stepping on some spikes. And then he's transported to Kokumo's lab? Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> what? It's, yeah, this is where it really starts losing me. I get really confused. So he eventually finds the older Kokumo. So the, the whole idea is he's gone to visit Kokumo to see if he can help with fighting Pazuzu. Mm-hmm. But then I didn't think they were fighting Pazuzu anymore. No. Um, I thought they were just trying to clear Father Merrin's name. Yeah. Um, so the older Kakumo is played by James Earl Jones. When we initially see him, he's dressed as a locust. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kakumo tells him he needs to have faith. And then Lamont falls into some spikes and wakes up in Kakumo's science lab. So Kakumo is now dressed in a lab coat and he tells him about locusts. There's loads of locusts there. And in particular, the good locust, which is a female that's able to calm the other locusts and prevent swarms and damage and, and all that stuff. I wonder who that is in this film. Uh, the good locust. So, Reagan leaves the hospital. <laughs> and she literally just... Literally, like, she just walks out. And like, where are you going? She's like, it's okay. And then the receptionist like, oh, okay. Then. Just lets her walk out. Yeah. But then... She... Then Sharon gets a call from the receptionist. Like, oh, fuck, she's left. And I'm like, well, you didn't stop her, did you? Yeah. Lamont returns from Africa. In a fancy new shirt. A fancy... Wearing a uh, batik style shirt, he's back like he's he's brought some sort of fucking souvenir. Yeah, it's like it's like what he's are been you on his, doing? But it's like he's been on his yeah. hobbops and he's come back with this new shirt. Like look yeah. at this real cool shirt I got from Africa. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Sharon just shouts at him for a bit. Um... Yeah, she tells him about himself, and she's right. Yeah, you know because. She, everything was fine until he came along. It's true. I said, we need to clear the name of Father Merrin. Like, do you? Why can't you just leave things be? I know. Why can't, you know, okay, Father Merrin, you know, people might not be on his side, but he knows the truth. He's he's long gone anyway. Yeah. He's been dead for God knows how long. Leave him be. Well, she tells him to stay away from Reagan, then he immediately finds Reagan at the History Museum. Yeah. Where she has to synchronise her in a very camp carrier bag. It looks like it's got a divine on the front. He's like, you have a great gift. Keep it for me. (laughs) Um, Um, Yeah. Yeah. In a vision, Merrin asks Lamont to watch over Reagan. Which I put in my notes. Oh my God, please end. Because this this film has felt like four hours. Mm -hmm. It really is. Drags, yeah, and we we've kind of cut parts as well. Like we've cut some of the boring, fatty bits of the film. Uh, Lamont and Reagan return to the old house in Georgetown, 
The pair are followed by Tuscan and Sharon, who are concerned about Reagan's safety. <laughs> well, I think Sharon is. Sharon's certainly not. As soon as Tuscan gets off the phone to Reagan, Sharon's like, fuck, stupid bitch. <laughs> wow, Sharon. Harsh. Why is Reagan a stupid bitch? What has she done? She's done nothing but nice to people all the way through this film. She fucking cured autism. Going back to the Georgetown house. (laughs) Sharon acts like a fucking weirdo from this point onwards. She does. So I think she's possessed. (laughs) I I think Sharon is possessed. How can you tell when her acting so bad? Exactly. And because she's kind of been a non-entity up into... I think she may have been possessed the whole time, but I, I ain't getting into that. Uh, Sharon and Tuskin are stopped by a bleeding man in distress. <laughs> Sharon is reluctant to help, but Tuskin, as a doctor, helps him. T- Tuskin says, well, I guess Reagan can wait. Of course you fucking can. Help this man in distress. He's bleeding. He's bleeding out right in front of you. It's like the end of Never, not Never Team movie where the guy's on his way to the airport to tell the girl he loves oh, her yeah. and just keeps getting stopped by various Stop. things. That is exactly what happens here. Exactly. Because then on the plane, there is some camp turbulence. Very camp. It's <laughs> a guy in the background who's flying in the air. And Tuscan helps a fellow distressed passenger loosen his tie. While Sharon seemingly prays, (laughs) Tuscan gives her a funny look for some reason and Sharon goes, why are you looking at me like that? (laughs) I'm confused. I'm confused. Uh, I feel like we're establishing Sharon to be a bitch from this part. Yeah. And Tuscan is the good Samaritan, Uh uh, which is confusing. Yeah. It's really confusing because where are these character traits come from? It's it's a little odd. Just completely out of nowhere. Um, but that turbulence was camp. It was very that was, it was straight yeah. out of airplane. But after that all was... these things that happen, they get stuck in traffic as well. Someone stops their taxi. So they I, all just I... give each other. They just give each other a weird look and yeah. move on with things. But I think <laughs> this is the demon creating all this. Oh yeah, of course. Because we're post yeoman. Uh, creating yeah. all this to stop them on the way, which makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. Um. But it's just the the they're characters that don't make any sense. <laughs> so Sharon and Tuskin's taxi crashes into the Georgetown. Which <laughs> <laughs> like completely crashes into it. Crashes. Killing the driver. But Tuskin and Sharon survive and enter the house where Sharon sets herself on fire. Yeah, before we get to that point, uh, en route, Bazuzu tempts Lamont by offering him unlimited power. Appearing as a succubus who's a doppelganger of Reagan. You know, cheap makeup Reagan. That's in the house, isn't it? And on the way, he oh, has okay. a vision. The, the taxi, yeah, crashes and so on. Although Lamont initially succumbs to the succubus, he's brought back by Reagan and attacks her doppelganger while a swarm of locusts um, attack the house, which begins to crumble around them. Now, in the original script, Reagan slash Pazuzu turns into a temptress... Which then inspires Father Lamont to rape her, which then sends Lamont into a despairing tailspin leading to his self destruction, all part of Pazuzu's plan. But before shooting began, Blair told Borman and the crew, That ain't gonna fucking happen. I know what kind of ugliness you have planned here, but Ugh. just forget it. I'm not doing it. Uh, so the replacement scene just has him losing control and mounting her for a second and then pulling back in horror. As it was, Blair said filming those erotic scenes between her, a 17-year-old, 
and 42-year-old married and middle-aged Burton was just very awkward and uncomfortable as it was. Insane. Absolutely fucking Same insane. director. Same. Who said he thought he, he didn't want to go for violence. Didn't want to go for violence. But he'll include a rape scene. It, absolutely in mm. fucking insane. What, good on Linda Blair for saying, yeah. I don't fucking think so, darling. Yeah. But why did that ever yeah. reach her ears? Why was that ever considered? It's a film about good. It's a film about ain't about angelic good. You know, why the fuck would you have that? Crazy. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. Um Yeah, it's just I, I don't know why that's necessary. At all. Because I mean we've obviously seen the finished product, which doesn't include it, and it doesn't make a single bit of fucking difference. <sighs> Thankfully, without that. The doppelganger of Reagan being a temptress as it was with her um, with her blouse on and everything or whatever she's wearing. Camp. It is camp. camp as tits. Reagan versus evil Reagan. Camp as tits. It's giving, you know, the evil dead. Yeah. The when she's got too much makeup yeah. on. <laughs> it's giving that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And her fighting herself. <laughs> just, just going back just slightly. Um... What I read online, there was a, a lot to be said. Well, not, but there was something to be said of the, the taxi driver okay. being a black man. Okay. And being pretty much a sacrifice. Yeah. To get them yeah, there. Yeah. And it, it's just, again, I think it reiterates what we said earlier mm-hmm. about the depiction of race in the film. Yeah. Um, that it, it is a weird grey area mm-hmm. where it just something just doesn't feel yeah right um especially when you realize what the whole film is about yeah uh in terms of the pure angelic saintly rich white girl yeah lamont manages to kill the doppelganger by beating open its chest and uh, pulling out its heart and in the end reagan banishes the locusts and pazuzu by enacting the same bull roarer ritual Attempted by Kakumo to get rid of locusts in Africa, although he failed and he was possessed because he isn't white. So yeah, so she quotes his what he had said earlier. So as the possessed Reagan, she quotes about uh, the the good locust who will break the chain reaction. Yeah. So she is the good locust. Uh-huh. So seemingly, and this is what I'm reading into it. So essentially what we're getting is that the privileged white girl is saving the day because she was always the good locust. Mm -hmm. But Kakumo, who is a well-respected scientist in Africa, couldn't do the job because he's not a good locust. The good locust has to be a pretty little rich white girl. That's how I'm reading it. Whilst we're on the subject of locusts, you know what this film was missing? Someone riding on top of a giant oh, yeah, locust, yeah, yeah. you know, like in like the one that's in the trailer. <laughs> oh yeah! Like where the fuck was that in this film? Is that in like the ridiculous? There's a three-hour hour director's three cut. Hours, yeah, uh, I, I'm not gonna watch it to find oh out. God, this, I'll just watch the trailer again. It's this fine. just felt like fucking five hours. Um, Imagine what the three-hour could feel. Like. But yeah, Sharon set herself on fire. We get a long sequence of uh, her just. Inside some fire. Yeah. <laughs> and outside the house, she dies from her injuries. And Tuscan tells Lamont to watch over Reagan. 
Reagan and Lamont leave whilst Tuscan stays to answer police questions. Couldn't look fucking explaining that. Uh, and that's Exorcist 2, The Heretic. That lovely ending. Sharon burnt to death. White girl conquering all. Well, Sharon, unmarried, single, without kids. Yeah. Woman. Mm-hmm. You know, let's sacrifice her in the end. Yeah. Um, what are the fuck? Can you remember what the final words of the film are? No. Lady, are you okay? <laughs> and you know what? I'm certainly not after watching that drivel. This is a tagline for the whole franchise, isn't it? Lady, are you okay? <laughs> Lady, are you okay? <laughs> um, it's bloated. It feels incredibly long. It's so confusing. It loses so much of what the original was about actually being scary, yeah. actually being a horror film. Uh-huh. You know, the the real fascinating mother-daughter relationship, which was integral to the first yeah. film. Um, it's, in my opinion, like I said earlier, missing the one central piece that keeps it all together. Because ultimately, it... It's not really a film about exorcism. No. There's no exorcism in it. Just flashes of previous exorcisms or whatever the fuck that ending was. Yeah. It's a mess. It's it's a shame it's such a mess because even, you know, it could have been messy and fun. Like the ending and like the opening of the film Mm. and the little... uh, you know, oh, I'm okay. I was possessed by a demon thing. You know, those little scenes just really indicate that there's a trash to piece to be found here. But it's there's so many more boring scenes of nothing happening or just absolute nonsense. Yeah. Um, and it just drags it down. Yes, like I said earlier, it, I I think William Goodhart is to blame for the majority yeah. of it. Um, because he was inspired by the belief that man and nature would inspire uh, mm-hmm. a oneness with God. And it gets so bogged down in that. Yeah. The idea of the locusts. And it shoehorns it in to an exorcism film. Yeah. And so it completely loses everything. And like I said earlier, the ingredients are there. Come on, Richard Burton, mm-hmm. Linda Blair, Louise Fletcher, you know, James Earl Jones, John Borman. Yep. You know, you have the original film. Just rip off the original fucking yeah. film, for yeah. fuck's sake. You know, rinse and repeat with yeah. slight differences. Why are you going so heavy on this nature? Mm-hmm. And so heavy on this meandering plot? And why did they think anyone would care? Why, why did, did they think anyone Why did they think care? anyone would want to watch this? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to the awards. I did, yeah. Surprising we don't have more opinions on this. <laughs> Biggest queen. Uh, it's got to go to St. Reagan. It is St. Reagan, the good locust. The, good, the white locust. The white locust. <laughs> Stop. Biggest gasp. Uh, I've got Sharon randomly calling Reagan a stupid bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I just put the non-Linda Blair Reagan. <laughs> that was a shock. Uh, best dialogue, it has to be. I was possessed by a demon. Oh, it's okay. He's gone. I completely agree. And that's camp. I mean, come on. Any scene with Reagan tap dancing. Tapper, tapper, tapper. 
Uh, and for ratings, I give it one tap dancing session to a floaty sax solo out of ten. I gave it two Reagans inappropriately groping Louise Fletcher wow, out of ten. Wow, that's generous. Soundtrack. Fucking, yeah. Soundtrack. I'm that's sorry. That's one was for. That's a good sound. <laughs> well, you can't give zeros. Um, if we if we gave ze- if we were allowed to give zeros, oh, wow. then it would have gotten a one. But I really like that soundtrack. It is a good soundtrack. Uh, Masterpiece, trash, 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 or basic. It is just straight up trash. Trash. It's trash. And if you want to witness it for yourself, it's available on video on demand, DVD, and part of the Exorcist Blu-ray box set. And if you enjoyed this, I recommend checking out the Exorcist free because you'll be given a much better sequel than what you were given here. I agree with Gary. I think you should check out the Exorcist 3. Um, I said if you enjoy this, check out His House. Yeah. Um, it's a film about haunting rather than an exorcism, but I feel it reflects African culture within horror it in does. a much better way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, talk to us on social media if you somehow enjoyed this film. We're Horror Court Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horror Court Trash on Twitter. I'm dead at Gaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, and GazCruz92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. Give us a rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, like and follow on everything else. Give us a rate on Spotify. Next week, I am so happy to say we'll be back to discuss a actual good film, but a film with many layers that we'll have a lot to say about. We'll be discussing George A. Romero's Martin. Yes, it's about blooming time. Yes. We made use of this gorgeous Blu-ray. Yeah. We Okay. Oh, excuse me. Oh, do do apologize, Mr. Dolby. Um, but yeah, 4K. Can't wait. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Bye.